One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Second time it's gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's. Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. So you can laugh. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you know? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to you, face, not say it to you now. I'm down to one field and we'll see them. What you doing down here, you shiny man? Oh, my David and Ken Early here with Monday's Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast, and these are really weird times at Chelsea. Ken, how are you? Ah, good. How are you, Owen? I'm not bad. I'm not bad. And a few observations from Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> there are about a million things you could say about Chelsea now anytime you watch them play but John Terry I don't know if you noticed afterwards using these forlorn hand gestures to apologise to the supporters after the defeat what was he do- what kind of gestures he was walking around you know apl- applauding and then dropping his hands slightly almost palms down towards around, uh, similar to the stereotypical uh, gesture of calm down calm down similar to that but in, in more of a you could tell with very much slower than the calm down very slow and you could see the, almost tears in his eyes oh, no. that it was the best he probably couldn't bring himself to fully apologise because then maybe Jose Mourinho might have some issue with that but yeah. you could see he was communicating some sort of contrition about another terrible performance Trevor Francis not a man known to really stir the pot of, of controversy in English football but he was on co-commentary in BT openly describing John Terry as playing like an old man Yeah, which I thought was really telling his legs have gone and he looks like an old man a member of the English football establishment such as Trevor Francis calling England's Lionheart John Terry an old man and Jose Mourinho everyone saw this obviously his post-match interview responding I counted them today 12 questions from Des Kelly's mm-hmm. interview not giving up Nothing, I have nothing to say. Nothing to say about your team. Nothing to say. Nothing to say about the way forward from here. Nothing to say. The Costa clash. Nothing to say. And this kind of went on quite hilariously for about maybe a minute. More worryingly, Ken, mm-hmm. you pointed out something in your Irish Times piece this morning, uh, that, an observation you made, that he, ter- uh, Mourinho didn't look like he had much to say to his coaching staff after the game. Well, this was really interesting, actually, because they, they kept, for some reason I was watching this on BT Sport, and BT Sport started showing, like, stadium camp. Um, and Mourinho was had like walked out on the field. Now I think there was some Chelsea players doing a warm down or something. But, yeah, I think there were. Yeah, but he wasn't actually watching that. Um, it was it was more he walked out with five his five kind of coaches henchmen uh, lackeys and uh, out into the centre circle, and it was like, why are you going out there? 
they're all they're kind of standing there and it looks like they're going to have a talk. Um, and they, they, for some reason, they don't want it to be inside where pff, the walls have ears. I'm not really sure. But one way or the other, he wanted to get as far away from any of the Stamford Bridge permanent structures as possible by positioning himself in the center circle of the pitch. And uh, so I was like, OK, are they going to be are they going to chat away here? What's what's going to happen here? And they were showing it, but they were barely saying anything at all. It was just Mourinho there, Mourinho in his suit, everyone else in their tracksuit, and Mourinho standing with his hands in his pockets. Um, and every so often, Mourinho would say something, uh, just like a, a line or two. He It wasn't like he was... Rallying the troops. No, it was. It, he didn't have anything to say. It, was, it wasn't like he had any coherent thoughts. He looked like a, a depressed man who every so often had thought of some new bitter angle that he hadn't thought of before and wanted to vent it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and meanwhile, the other guys who were standing around were not sort of saying, oh, you know, boss, I don't know what you say in that situation. I mean, there are groups, I think, in which the subordinate members of the group uh, try to provide a little bit of input from time to time and say, hey, boss, you know, that wasn't great. But, you know, there was one thing I noticed that, you know, I thought we did well. Or, you know, whatever, just talking. Nobody was saying anything. It was literally just the boss is in a fowler. Uh, let's let's show him that we too feel his pain. You know, it was literally like how oh, how depressed can we all look? We at? all feel terrible, and the guys kind of little darting glances around to check if they're looking more depressed <laughs> than you know Silvino Luru. I don't know if Silvino's looking that depressed. You know, was that an absent-minded smile beginning to creep across the face of Rui Faria? <laughs> <laughs> Has he forgotten what this is all about? So. Yeah, it looked like. Uh, I mean, I suppose this is this is the way Mourinho runs things. You know, he's he's obviously the top dog, and the other dogs are very much, uh, you know, epsilon dogs. It's not like uh, it's not like it's you know a team of rivals, no, uh, or you know first among equals. It's like Jose's the king, and they're all there just to sort of um, uh, daub oils upon his feet. You know, at the at the correct time. It's not dog eat dog Ken. It's more one dog eats all the other dogs regularly. Yeah, and all the other dogs are a little bit worried that if they maybe step out of line, they might get eaten here. I mean, it's it's clearly the, the culture that he fosters because you never know who he might irrationally blame for at any moment. He could select a victim, and it could be you. So you've got to try and avoid that. I mean, you look at these reports that are going up in the Chelsea website. You know, these, ma- these hilarious match reports that Chelsea are doing where it's like... Uh, you know, it's 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 just the most comical propaganda. Absolutely, just of of every match, and it's it's particularly uh, noticeable given that they've lost you know more than half their matches, and all and yet all in all these reports they've clearly been the better side, and you know <laughs> they've been dilling by the referee and all this kind of stuff. But I think the guy who who writes those reports, like Mourinho, knows who that is. You know what I mean? If Mourinho sees on the Chelsea website some report which seems to be pushing the line that actually Chelsea. Could play a bit better, uh, you know. Maybe, maybe he's storming into the uh, storming into the office at sort of eight thirty on Monday morning, demanding to know, demanding a showdown. Yep. You know, you don't want to be in that position. So maybe it's safer just to uh, say, "Oh, we were incredibly unlucky again." You know, it seems like that kind of culture has permeated the whole um, the whole club. All right, Kennedy's report on sport. But of course, we won't start with them, Owen, because although you could argue that we already have. 
because the show doesn't really start until the report on sport music chimes in there, Ken. Well, well the rest we, of it's just a preamble. Because we need to talk about the best team in the Premier League, uh, which is obviously Leicester City. Uh, Leicester City with the two best players in the league, um, once again blowing away their opponents. 3-2 away from home this time against West Brom. Two, guy, two goals by Riyad Mahrez and one by Jamie Vardy. Riyad Mahrez and Jamie Vardy both have, if you add together their goals and assists, both are top of the chart uh, with 12. And lagging some distance behind them is Mesut Ozil, who's currently playing out of his skin for Arsenal uh, with 10. Lukaku, who was absolutely brilliant uh, for Everton yesterday, uh, linking up really well with Arena Kone, also has 10. Um, so yeah, so that's how good Mares and Vardy are, and this uh, and their um, goals and assists propelling Leicester to third in the league. Um, Leicester, who were managed by Claudio Ranieri, and this is another bitter aspect of this whole thing for Jose Mourinho. All these little, um, so the various losers and second raters and specialists and failure who we, who Mourinho's enjoyed kicking around so much. Um, Arsene Wenger's top of the league. Um, What's his face? <laughs> What's his face? <laughs> Claudio Ranieri is third. Yeah. Ranieri. I mean, yeah. the, Mourinho did not see this coming. Rafa Benitez is is also top of the league. I was going to say all he needs is Benitez to come back to English football and take over some plucky underdog and have him riding high at the top of the league. Well, if Benitez uh, if Benitez wins the Spanish league with Barcelona that'd be, or with Real Madrid, rather, that would be um, painful enough. Yeah. Uh, but the enemies are on all sides. Obviously, the enemies that he talks about, um, or he, he alludes to, um, the reason that he can't speak, he's not free to speak. Uh, but also, within his camp, um, uh, on BBC Five Live, there are reports that one Chelsea first-teamer had told uh, a total contact of this journalist, I would rather lose than win for Jose Mourinho. So it seems as though there's a few issues there. Yeah, and that's certainly the sense that you're getting anytime you watch them now, that while not every player... It's, you don't normally hear it stated as baldly as that, that they've, but it's usually it's, they've stopped playing for the manager, when actually what that translates to is they want to lose games. Some players, there's a possibility, they might want to lose games so that the manager ultimately loses his job. Yeah. That's the way it sometimes works in professional football. That is the way that it works. I mean, if, you have, if your relationship with your manager has broken down... Um, if the price of getting rid of him is that the club has to lose a couple of games, you're probably prepared to put up with that. You're not going to win the league anyway. No, they're not. And I mean, the situation they're in now, uh, they're very unlikely to get to the Champions League as well. So the season is is, is a bust. Um, I don't see them. I don't see them getting back into where they were. I mean, they're 17 points down on where they were this time last year. So if you took 17 points away from their title-winning total last season. What do, you, what do you have, about 70 points? I can't remember exactly how many points they got. Is it 87 or something along those lines? Mm-hmm. That's, you know, and so if they suddenly adopted from this point on their championship winning form of last season, they would barely scrape into the reckoning for the Champions League. And I don't see that. That's winning every game. Well, or no. Or just hitting that it isn't. It isn't okay. quite, because if you remember their, uh, their actual title winning season. Sorry, of course, yeah, yeah. Mostly, yeah. it was, it was, it was the first half of the season was better than the second half. The second half didn't didn't go too well. But I, I mean, you look at the team, and I don't really see where. Um, I, I I don't believe Mourinho can get it, get get any improvement out of them. I really don't think they can. I mean, when you look at uh, the team that beat them, I mean, this is a team that also got rid of a manager a couple of weeks ago and seems now to be playing much better. 
I mean, Liverpool um, are missing players. I mean, Sturridge obviously uh, is a, doesn't you know, doesn't seem to be able to play. Um, Jordan Henderson, who's an important player, I mean, their captain, he's been injured, uh, and yet the team that they put out against Chelsea, you know, was suddenly performing really well. Players are, are, are giving a lot more than. Uh, maybe it was thought they were capable of. Yeah, there's a statistic being trotted out before the game that the chosen eleven, the Liverpool chosen eleven, had scored a total of two league goals between them all season, mm. and they managed. To, well, they didn't manage to score three. Benteke came on; he had previously scored more goals than that put together. But they managed to find a way to score three goals away against the champions, which was impressive for Liverpool. But I did think up until quite recently, up until this game actually, that the calls for Mourinho to go were premature. Uh, sub- did subscribe to this idea that uh, look, you know, pop, who's better than Jose? Who are they going to get? Who are they going to get that's better, bigger name than Jose Mourinho that's had more success at that club than Jose Mourinho? And the answer is nobody. But that's not the Mourinho that they have at the moment. They have the one who's managing a team towards oblivion and towards what seems like an inevitable end for him. I mean, if you if you can make an argument that he could turn it around by the end of the season, write this one off, and then go again next year, then that's that's enough reason to stay for me, but I don't know if you can make that argument at the moment. It just looks really doubtful. There's no fight in them. There's nothing in them. No, uh, I don't think it's going to happen. I mean, you know, what what would change if, if, if they were to give them to the end of the season, you know, they finish in mid-table. Um, I don't think Mourinho's going to want to be associated with something like that. And that wouldn't just happen quietly. That's the other point. It's not as though he could have an incident-free season from here to the end, write it out and start again. It would be drama after drama, negative story after negative story, and that ultimately has an impact. Because he, he, I mean, if he was to own this failure, then you know, he would rather, he would much rather blame it on, on others. I think he would, he would rather kind of bring the whole thing crashing down and then point his finger at these dark forces that have, um, dark forces that have caused him to lose his job, rather than accept responsibility. This is actually at least partly my fault. Mm. He doesn't want to do that. It's like uh, if you, you know, if you believe that you're, if you're always trying to kind of sell the story that your success has an almost magical quality, that you're just different from everybody else. You're not like other managers. You've just got a special, you're not like someone like Wenger who's capable of puttering along without winning the league for 11 years. You know, Mourinho literally couldn't do that because if he doesn't win the league or if he doesn't win, then he always has to find other people to blame. And it becomes it becomes increasingly destructive. I mean, Arsene Wenger has had to swallow a lot of bile over the years, and he's had to put up with people calling him a loser and a you know an also ran and all those, which I'm sure hurts. But he has also managed to be quite great, graceful about his failures. He has. I remember Bobby Robson saying uh, Newcastle went to Arsenal. This was when Arsenal were really successful under Arsene Wenger. They went around. It was Christmas 2000, 2001, and won three one in an unexpected uh, and um, pretty brilliant performance by them. Lauren Ribeiro scored a goal. Thierry Henry went crazy at the final whistle into the referee's face, doing a bit of a Jose Mourinho on it, actually. Sarcastic smile, shouting at the referee, um, just generally acting pretty unpleasantly. Bobby Robson, obviously oozing class, (laughs) just sort of strolling around, oozing class and gentlemanliness everywhere, (laughs) just said... You know, some people here, they got to learn how to lose. And, you know, if Bobby Robson was around today, he would be delighted to see the progress that Arsene Wenger has made. He has learned how to lose. <laughs> and how. He's, he's learned it better than almost anyone. 
And maybe now he's ready to win again. You know, Arsenal are, are certainly going really well at the top of the season. But at each point, you know, I don't remember Arsene Wenger selling his players down the river I don't, or throwing them under the bus. I don't remember him attacking. I mean, he's moaned about a lot of things. But never, never has he suggested that the world is against him. You know, English football is against him. The referees are in a conspiracy. You know, nonsense like this. He hasn't. And because of that, he's actually managed to retain his own credibility throughout this long period of not winning any major trophies. Yep. And, you know, That's something know. Mourinho's not going to... You know, I mean, maybe maybe Mourinho's way is better in some ways. I mean, he, he brings a lot of intensity to it. I mean, his teams have been extremely successful, but obviously it doesn't really seem to work for a long time. And then the, the situation that they're in now, Mourinho, Mourinho is going to have to, is going to be plagued with his own questions. Despite his big trophy cabinet, is he actually just a, a parrot that comes along and sits on the shoulder of a team that wins something? You know, his team that's going to win something anyway. A, a, a successful team, or a team that's had a lot of money spent on it, you know, that Chelsea team the first time around was assembled at huge, you know, cost. Yeah. If Ranieri had been managing them, would he win the league? Well. Yeah, he, yeah, he would. He may well have, but he would. Mourinho always has the Porto argument to make there. Porto. And I would too. say the Inter Milan argument too, to be honest. Winning the Champions League, beating Barcelona the way that they beat Barcelona. There's enough outside of the Chelsea Real Madrid superpowers hmm. that I think suggest that he's actually a pretty good manager. But the whole idea of him not having a longevity Seems to, seems to have a real currency. It just just doesn't seem that he can last. Well, it's because he's it's because he's not honest. So he's not he's he, he you know there's a, there is a, if when you when you're never accepting responsibility that maybe you have done something wrong over over time that becomes corrosive. You know people are the players are kind of standing around going oh here, here we go again. You know what is it this time? You know the referees, the doctor, who you know Eden Hazard. Who is it? Who, whose fault is it this time? You know and. You can see this kind of sluggishness about them now. They don't really believe anymore. You know, the Liverpool players the other day, they really believed. It was like, this is, yeah, come on. And, you know, they went a goal down to Chelsea. I mean, how many times have you seen that happen to Liverpool and they just surrender? I mean, if it, if it had been Rodgers, they certainly would have lost the game and not scored, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, Klopp is there, chin up. You know, you can see him literally doing this on the sideline. Come on, we've still got plenty of time here. And besides, it became apparent after a few minutes that Chelsea didn't want to play. It's like Chelsea were almost like, oh no, now we've got to cling on for 86 minutes. We were hoping to get that goal a little bit later <laughs> and cling on for a shorter amount of time. This is going to really, our fingernails are like going to be, you know, under a lot of strain here as we cling. Um, and, you know, they just didn't want to compete. This is, their, this is their own game. And then at the end, you know, the Lucas decision not to send Lucas off is a very bad decision, yeah. like, as far as I can see. It's an obvious second yellow card. It's a, it's a, it's a classic, like a textbook second year old card and weirdly in commentary Michael Owen is trying to make that stupid argument that people make from time to time about well you've you got to manage the situation sure it was a yellow card it was de definitely a yellow card yeah. but he'd already had a yellow card does he deserve to get sent off for that well yes Michael he does <laughs> because it's a second yellow card that's the rule it, it's sad I mean he was playing well and he uh, he did have an important game for Liverpool uh, and if they'd lost at that point it would have been very damaging and he should have been sent off, but he wasn't. Uh, but the problem is that Chelsea's reaction to that is so self-destructive. It's so, it's so petulant. It's, it's like, oh, well, then, what can we possibly do? And it's almost they gave up. You know, that's literally what, what happens. Then Mourinho comes out afterwards and blames everything on that. But the whole, it was still 1-1 at that stage. The whole, everything happened after that. You know, there was still time. Why, you know, but it, it seems as though there's no 
leadership coming from him, you know, he's almost more concerned with, well, now we can see why we've lost this game. And that's as much of an indictment as anything. It's not as though he's even give, giving out about a goal that they created and scored, Chelsea created and scored, and was disallowed. Allowed. It was actually, they didn't send that guy off for making it. Yeah. Uh, even that, the thing he's given out about, is nothing that was conjured up by Chelsea. No. Because they were... And, and, it, and it, has a, it has a double effect as well, because it sort of calls into question all of Chelsea's victories. I mean, if the decisions of, if all matches are decided by refereeing decisions, then... So are all so were all the matches that you won. You know what I mean? You're, you're kind of you're you're putting your players in the background. Your players are actually the most important ones. They're the ones who have to win the game. But everything Mourinho is doing is almost minimizing them. They're like this. They're, they're like this hapless group of powerless children. You know who are be, who are being um, whose efforts are, are all being made irrelevant by these referees. You know what I mean? It's it's. It's not a good way for the for the players to think about it. I don't happen to think most of the Chelsea players actually believe Mourinho. I really don't think they do. I mean, I I, I think that's his problem now. Nobody believes him anymore, and I, and and once they stop believing you, I don't really see how that's ever going to turn around. Unless you're prepared to be a bit more to show that you're prepared to be a bit more honest. I mean, in Mourinho's case, that would mean accepting responsibility, accepting blame. And I just don't think he's ready to do that yet. We'll talk to Dion Fanning in a little while, a bit more about Mourinho. Where do you want to go now? Just Pardew's comments about Martial. Um, we will talk about Manchester United as well because they, they're having this problem scoring goals. Um, Alan Pardew uh, was just talking about Martial so much after the game. We didn't give uh, Martial an inch, not an inch. It was a big target for us to stop him. We felt if we could stop him, we could stop their creative angle. When you take into account his age, that's some recommendation. I have to say, he's an impressive young player. He handles, handles himself very well today because he would have felt our presence around him. And he still had moments in the game. With such, uh, with such a young player, he'll have to be very, very careful, the Manchester United manager, to keep his exuberance there because we're all looking to stop him. Um, <laughs> everybody was kind of like, wow, uh, what about Wayne Rooney? Pards. In defense of Wayne, uh, says, <laughs> says Pardew. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't necessarily as though it was set up as a prosecution type situation. But in defense of Wayne, I didn't really think he got a lot of good position. I didn't think he had a lot of chances to create anything. We bossed the second half, and in the first half, he didn't get a lot of crosses, so it was difficult for him to have an influence on the game. Um, yeah, we'll talk to John Bruin about this. I mean, the problem Manchester United have is, that, you know, all these statistics now. Uh, we were talking about this, I think, a couple of weeks ago on comparing their shots per game to Arsenal and City, and that's continued uh, with Man-, Man City and Arsenal having, you know, twice as many per game and twice as many on target, and that's obviously going to make a difference. I mean, shots on target is something which makes a difference. You know, the more you have, the more goals you're likely to score. Even within that, the percentage isn't great of the shots that they take actually hitting the target. Mm. Yeah, so it's really banal stuff they're playing. Twi- they've, it's, it's just not efficient. It's like there's too many, there's too much build-up, not enough attempts on goal, um, long periods of possession, which aren't succeeding in opening up uh, the opposing teams. And... You know, it's, it's it's at the moment it's not leading anywhere, and I mean, there's there's a question over whether this is because the players who are there aren't executing it properly. I, you know, is it time for Wayne Rooney to take a rest, or whether the style itself is maybe something which isn't going to work in the in the Premier League? I mean, you look at the teams. I mean, it's hard to it's hard to know, really. I mean, why why could a team like Manchester United not come along and play great possession football, control games in the Premier League in the manner of you know Barcelona, and win that way? Why couldn't that happen? Um, 
Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I suppose we're seeing it now, whether it can. I mean, I, I'm not saying that Manchester United's possession game is has yet reached the heights of, you know, a Guardiola Barcelona team. I don't think they're there yet. Whether they ever will be get there is, you know, it's, it would be impressive if they did manage to do it. The Premier League is, of course, a very different environment from the Spanish League. I mean, uh, whether the teams are, are you know, have, have greater quality is up for debate. Uh, definitely, though, they uh, have a higher... <laughs> they've got better paid players who are usually physically very fit. And this, the tempo of the game is a lot higher. So I think a lot of these teams are set up to kind of counter-attack in a kind of a way which the Spanish teams can't quite do. A lot of the Spanish teams, when they get the ball back from Barcelona, want to try and implement their own light version of what Barcelona are doing. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with the philosophy that building a possession game won't work in will will work in English football. I don't see why it can't if it's executed properly. But Arsenal were the great Arsenal team were I, I don't know what the statistics are, but always seemed to me to have plenty of the ball, but could also strike, could also hit on the counter attack when the chance was there to flick one over the wing and get Freddie Lundberg running onto a header in two or three touches. That's what they do as well. Mm. It's just that it's a sort of slavish adherence to one way of playing that seems to be undermining them at the moment. Because it did strike me watching the Liverpool Chelsea game. And as well as Liverpool played, they still swallowed possession quite a lot. Oh, it was yeah. as though they were so eager to press that they were, weren't always thinking what they were going to do with the ball. Coutinho, as usual, is maybe uh, an exception to that. But a lot of them were giving away too quickly and then were brilliant at winning it back again. And I was looking at it thinking, why doesn't the team just start playing possession football in the Premier League? And I was, oh yeah, well, Man United are doing that. Yeah. It's not going so well for them so far. Well, it's like if you're, if, you're def- if you're playing against a lot of teams who are all defending deep and they're not really given much space... Um, you end up sort of working the ball around a lot, looking for angles. Uh, I mean, when Manchester United were successful under Ferguson, they kind of had a bit more of a "we'll just hammer the door down" type of approach. You know what I mean? They weren't they weren't afraid to do that at all. They put the ball into the box a lot, and they reckon, especially playing at Old Trafford, like you know, it, it's a big stadium like that. You actually need to play that type of football in order to get the crowd on your side, and just not to have a sort of a tense, silent crowd who every so often are like scolding you for not attacking enough. You know what I mean? You want the crowd to be to be going nuts and the opposing team to start to get a little bit frazzled under the pressure. And, you know, they break. I mean, how many times did we see that over the years? They just, you know, but they, they cross the ball a lot. They put it in. They just stuck it in the box a lot. And back there, sort of center forwards, Ruud van Nistrooy or, you know, Ronaldo, whoever they had, to be getting on the end of these, Andy Cole, Dwight York, and they're not really doing that at the moment. It's all a little bit more measured. It's a bit more clever. But, like, I, the problem they have is that they're, they, Manchester United can't just keep doing this and sort of puttering along. There's a lot of Manchester United fans who will expect them to be challenging to win the title. At the moment, they don't look like they're going to do that. So how long are they going to be happy with this situation? You know, this is, this is going to cause, a, a, you know, unrest. It's an unstable situation. Anyway. You mentioned Cristiano Ronaldo there. Yes, uh, just Ronaldo. I guess he's probably doing a bit of publicity for his upcoming movie. Whoa, not far away now. November 9th. Yeah, can't wait. Um, just just a couple of things. Uh, I mean, he's saying, I'm not the most humble person in the world. <laughs> I admit that. I'm not fake, but I am humble in the sense that I like to learn. Uh, he talks about how he learns from other sports. He likes to basically uh, play with like the greatest athletes in other sports in order to see what he can learn from them. You know, why he is humble in that sense. Um, talks about how he needs the haters. He needs an enemy. Uh, it was like that since I've been 18 or 19. Uh, they sh- they start shouting when I touch the ball, but it's no problem. It ends up being motivation. 
And then to talk about his son. He says, I would like him to follow in my footsteps to be a forward and score many goals, but he prefers to be a goalkeeper. He changed me a lot. I dreamt of having a son since I was 25. He really changed my way of thinking. He supports me and he's always smiling. And then the problem that he has bringing up his son, given that he's like a super wealthy, right? Ronaldo's own upbringing was quite different. Mm -hmm. You know, he was just kind of running around with a ball and his family didn't have any money. Now, well, as he says, it's easy to be spoiled when you have a big bed to sleep in. Yogurts and fruit and fast cars in the garage. <laughs> Yogurts. Well, why not? <laughs> the real trappings of fame there. Your young kid gets to eat yogurts. One of these days, he asked me for an iPhone 6, but I told him no. <laughs> what and age he, is the kid? Oh, he's like five, I think. Um, he, says, he said it was to call me, and I said for him to use his grandmother's phone. You can't control everything, but education is the greatest gift you can give. Every Sunday, we break the routine and go out for burgers and Coca-Cola. The balance is important. When I finish my career in four or five years, I plan to live like a king with my family and friends. <laughs> so that's his, uh, that's the setup he's aiming for. Rooney's son wants to be a goalkeeper as well. Does he? I watched the Rooney BBC documentary, the Gary Lineker program that I hadn't seen. I watched over the weekend. Isn't it good? There's a scene. Yeah, it's very good. It's, it was interesting. I think Barney Roney, one of the English journalists, is writing about that, writing in complimentary fashion about it, but was sort of questioning not so much the motives behind it but saying would Wayne Rooney need this documentary made about him if he was still right on top of his game and everybody loved him it was almost as though it was a piece that reminded everyone about the Wayne Rooney story and why he should appeal to people you know he's going back to Croxet in Liverpool and yeah. visiting his old neighbours and family and bumping into people along the road who all seem there seems to be a genuine affection and it was all very well done but yeah Kai, is it Kai the older lad yeah once age Rooney goes well, where where do you want to play? You know what? You're obviously you're going to be football, football blah, blah, blah. Oh, I'm going to be a goalkeeper. And Rooney's eyes to heaven, similar to Ronaldo. Ronaldo yeah. mentions that in the piece in the trailer that they show that clip of the, the son saying he wants to be a goalkeeper. And Ronaldo, real straight face, says, "You're crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who would want to be a goalkeeper? I don't know what it is about these sons of really talented attacking players want to go in nets." Well, is it because Ronaldo and Rooney, when they're playing out in the back garden with the kid, just take shots all the time? Probably just stick them in. Goals, they actually yeah. just hog the ball. And shoot, uh, like shoot past their, uh, you know, little sons and then celebrate like it full on, full intensity training. And uh, <laughs> and just, I mean, maybe that's what the, you know, maybe Ronaldo and Rooney feel that, you know, a lot of a lot of parents would take the approach of letting, uh, you know, if they play football against the kid or whatever in the back garden, the kid always seems to win 10-9, you know, or <laughs> or something like that. But may, maybe they've just, they, it's just 10-0 every single time. Dad, will you go on goals? No, no. No, I'm not, not going to get in there. Sorry, Kai. Lashes it past him, you know, at like, it's just the accuracy that takes the ball into the top corner that means he hasn't killed his own, you know, <laughs> seriously injured his own son uh, with the way he's hammering those balls at the goal. But, One yeah. more quick story. Just Barcelona on, um, they managed to beat Hitafe and it was a, a great, win for them so they're all very excited and it was Halloween so they all got up uh, dressed up in Halloween costumes I do think that Halloween has kind of gone up a notch in the last couple of years I think that it's because of Facebook mainly um, you can get dressed up and then you can take a photo and show everybody and it seems like people are really beginning to push this thing to uh, higher and higher levels um, the Barcelona players all got dressed up Luis Suarez going for a Batman uh, outfit rather than there was a Dracula, but that was Luis Adriano. Um, and they started running around the stadium in Getafe uh, and they blundered straight into the press conference of Victor Rodriguez, which was taking place there, the disconsolate Victor Rodriguez. 
uh, and the Barcelona players burst in, sort of screaming and pretending to be monsters. And then <laughs> arrived there in the middle of this, you know, serious and, and, and sort of solemn situation. And then, you know, sort of quietened down and, and made their way out of the room. So it was somewhat a, uh, an embarrassing scene. But then Barcelona have, have released this self-flagellating statement. Um, um, after the reaction provoked by the way we celebrated our victory and the good moment of the team coinciding with Halloween night, the Barcelona first team squad wishes to state that one, in no case was our intention to offend or annoy our colleagues at Getafe Football Club. Two, the entrance to the mix on coinciding with Victor Rodriguez's press conference was an unfortunate and involuntary coincidence for which we personally apologize and wish to express to him our respect. The images filmed of this moment show that one of our players literally said, where are we going? We've made a mistake. Three, the club is conscious of the responsibility that being an FC Barcelona player implies and want to give our apologies to anyone who has felt offended, especially members of the team and fans of Getafe. Our commitment is unwavering with the fans and members of FC Barcelona. We should be able to feel proud of this team off the pitch as well. Oh, very uh, fulsome apology. Very, yeah. I mean, Vic, the face of Victor Rodriguez is quite funny as suddenly the, 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 you know, the door bursts open and in, in come Shrek. Dracula, Batman, <laughs> and a bunch of other guys. And I think they, 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 they describe it as involuntary. It was as though those five lads were just pushed in by somebody else. Yeah. One of the big men on the team just shoved them in the middle of the press conference. Big, uh, big baby zone. That's what they are. That's the end of Ken Early's report on sport. Mm. You remember my grandmother, no disrespect, when I used to get in trouble, she looked at me and said, hmm. And I knew a butt was coming at the house. I'm an alien. Think about it. Roy Jones is born. Jane 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 Tony is born. I Ryan Barkley is born. But I'm telling you right now, I'm an alien. Tell me why I'm not. Explain why I'm here. I'm an alien. I should have been on this game 15, maybe 20 years ago, man. And then that's why I said I'm an alien. I'm an alien. Tell me why I'm not. Explain why I'm here. I'm an alien. But I'm telling you right now. I'm an alien. Just Google it and get your own information. I'm an alien. You should be going. I'm an alien. Google it. I'm an alien. Mm. I'm an alien. Dion Fanning was at Stamford Bridge yesterday. Dion, we've been talking about Chelsea's defeat and the usual pre- uh, and post-match behaviour and his behaviour during the game of Jose Mourinho but that pre- that interview he gave on BT Sport and on BBC later on were he wasn't very forthcoming let's just say was he any more open with the press after the game? Yeah he was um, he did he did uh, open up eventually he, he, you know, he, was, he was still pretty defensive and paranoid and he started off by uh, saying that he, 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 he was here to listen uh, rather than to answer any questions but one of the uh, one of the sort of season reporters told him, uh, "Don't be sarky, Jose." And uh, he uh, he kind of he kind of answered a few questions there, but he was still kind of asking, doing that thing of asking when people would ask questions about the the Lucas sending off and, and various incidents. He was asking for their opinion. What do you think? What are you afraid of? Uh, I can't answer because I'm a you know I'm a, I'm a persecuted man who is you know who who will be who will be sent to, to sort of to, to the tower if I, if I give my opinion whereas you people should be able to answer and help speak your mind and uh, he's, he ended it by saying next time I will uh, bring in some personality for the journalists 
who who can you know speak up and answer when I can't. And you know, so this is kind of ongoing. And you know, t- you know, the feeling you get from from people at Chelsea is that uh, this sort of paranoid uh, conspiratorial worldview is kind of entirely shared within the within the sort of management team. Uh, and it, it's proving impossible for them to to break out of, and everything is seen through that prism, which is ultimately uh, pretty, you know, is self defeating. And you know, there was an incident during the game when uh, Klopp uh, turned to Lee Mason, the fourth official, to complain about something, and really went crazy in a Klopp way, like he kind of almost kind of was doing a sort of you know air guitar kind of windmilling mm-hmm. as he kind of screamed at Lee Mason. And Mourinho saw this and uh, turned around and looked at Lee Mason and said, "You know, if I do that, if I do that, uh, and again, you know, just everything is 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 filtered through this this persecution complex, this idea that everyone is out to get him when they need, to, you know, if anything is going to happen at Chelsea, which I don't think it is at this point, that needs to be kind of uh, discarded." Um, well, what is your opinion then? And you were there. You, I don't know whether you're wearing glasses or if you need to wear glasses to watch football matches, but you presumably saw these incidents, you maybe saw replays of them, you had a chance to form your own opinions, presumably free of outside interference. What do you think? Well, I think, I think Lucas was, uh, <laughs> you know, if, if the incidents are important, which I don't think they really are, because, you know, I think Lucas should probably have been sent off. But again, I hadn't really seen the, the Costa stamp on Skirtle, which was, uh, if Lucas was, was probably a second yellow, Costa's was a red card, I think. Uh, and uh, he was—he was that—that that was a lucky escape for Chelsea. So if you're going through incidents and and totting them up, there isn't really evidence of a conspiracy. I think the more important thing is that every you know every game is is sort of the same for Chelsea at the moment. Uh, this this seems identical to the Southampton match, where you know they they scored early and then stopped playing, and you know on, on Saturday they they stopped playing for you know from the minute they scored, uh, and. That to me, you know, you could you could argue, you could I suppose argue that 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 is still the 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 sign of a Jose Mourinho side, which has just decided that there's nothing to do once you get a goal, but you know, defend and hope that you win one nil. But the 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 extent to which it is happening with the players that Chelsea have points to something else, and the way they're conceding goals then uh, also suggests that this isn't a, a Mourinho side. Now you look at every Liverpool goal on on Saturday. Uh, but especially the, the the last two, and the amount, the amount of time that Coutinho and Benteke had would never have been allowed under a, you know a, a Mourinho team at its peak. Yeah, and there's a lack of I don't know if it's muscle is the right word or maybe just aggression. I mean, we talked about the Diego Costa incident there, but other than that, Costa was a bit of a pussycat all day, really, and there wasn't much going on with him and Skirt. Well, so maybe you'd obviously see more being at the game, Dion, but he seems to have lost that spark. The rest of the team, William, seem to be targeted by Liverpool. Players are all coming in and hammering him. And just in general, there seems to be, whatever about all the other qualities they've lost, they seem to ha- now be fi- almost physically diminished on the field. Yeah, I, I, I think there's something in that. I think, uh, I, I think that also ties in with what has gone wrong at Chelsea in that when you look at Mourinho at, at, you know, in his first spell there, the players he had who, who were loyal to him, like Drogba and Lampard and Terry, you know, well, there were was, there was some problems with Terry towards the end. Uh, they were you know, physical, physical players and, and, and leaders and players who, who were able to kind of embody what Mourinho wanted from, from a side. This side is different. I don't think they, they feel uh, 
the, the, that loyalty to, to Mourinho at any stage. Um, there are different different kind of collection of players, uh, and what Mourinho wants from a side, they're not able to provide. Uh, then, when you add in the, the sort of fractures within the dressing room between between the manager and some of the players, you end up looking at, as I said, looking at these games which keep playing out in the same way. Uh, this lack of fight, this lack of, of of belief, and Mourinho keeps coming in and saying, saying, "Oh, yeah, I couldn't have asked for more, you know, I couldn't have asked for more from my players." Uh, the West Ham game, there was a kind of a bit of an improvement uh, once. Um, once Mikel came on, actually, which was kind of you know the fact that Mikel is now uh, sort of outplaying players like Matic and Fabregas says something in itself, I think. But they're you know most of the games are going going a similar way, and Mourinho comes in, says the same things, touches on you know on conspiracies, and you're it's it's you're just waiting for the end, and I think the end is coming. Yeah, and I mean the end is okay. One of the things that I can't be improving Jose Mourinho's mood, I imagine. I mean, I think it. You know, I don't know if it necessarily matters that much compared to whatever major issues are, are going on in his head at the moment. But um, I mean, he's he's obviously talking about the enemy without, uh, in terms of the conspiracy that's against him, and this I, I imagine would include um, the FA, the media, referees, uh, all of these kinds of people who want to see Chelsea fail, uh, and he's complaining about them all the time. But what about the sort of enemy within that he has to deal with at Chelsea? Because there's. Uh, there was this piece by Karen Brady where she engaged in a bit of concern trolling, I think it's called, uh, saying that she, she felt sorry for Jose, that he didn't have a better relationship with his chief executive. After explaining that, <clears throat> they'd left a place, they, they cleared a place for him to sit next to the Chelsea directors uh, when he was sent off at West Ham. And he would rather stand at the back and be filmed by Danny Dyer and subjected to other indignities rather than sit next to his, his own uh, bosses. There's then the fact that on the morning of the game on Saturday, a lot of journalists have a very similar story saying that he's got three games to save his job. Uh, I guess when he sees that story, he must think to himself, interesting, interesting. But I don't know if it's going to increase his level of trust in the people around him at Chelsea. Well, I think that's that's a, an ongoing thing at Chelsea where it's a club where, where, that, that st- where stories come out uh, uh, a lot and... Um, that you know, I, I think if 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 Mourinho was to uh, try and try and stop all leaks, he, he'd be he'd be doing nothing else really. And um, and I think especially now with a with a uh, unhappy dressing room, there's there's uh, there are so many different. You know, you saw the story the story that came out yesterday about the player who who'd rather lose than win for Mourinho. This this kind of stuff that is is gather, gathering uh, you know speed now. And and I don't think <laughs> clearly. And I think the West Ham thing. I think again, the sort of the, the sense of persecution kind of is evident in what Mourinho does at West Ham. I think he'd rather be seen standing lonely at the back of a stand uh, rather than look like just another uh, blazer sitting in the director's box. I think he wants to, uh, you know, <laughs> let people know that this, you know, look what look what look what look what uh, you know fate has happened to you know befalled me this time. And uh, I don't think. Any of it is helping. I thought it was. I thought one of the most interesting things last week was when he was asked after the uh, penalty shootout defeat at Stoke. Um, you know, did he have to attach any blame to the uh, to the players who missed the penalties, which included Eden Hazard, of course, who is supposedly not very happy. Uh, and he kind of said, "No, there's no blame to any of the players. 
and then you kind of he, he he goes on and you kind of think well like he said well if I attach blame to anyone and you kind of think he's going to take the normal managerial route and say well, you know I attach it to myself he says if I attach blame to anyone I attach it to those who ran away and wouldn't take a penalty <laughs> and uh, and you just kind of go okay Jose stop stop now <laughs> you know, there's, there's no need in every situation people are letting him down people are betraying him and that is the kind of Mourinho way. But in, in, in a club, in a dressing room, where very few people seem to feel, very few people of, of, of importance and consequence feel any loyalty to him, it's not, it's not going to work. And that is his problem. The, player, the players who are loyal to him aren't the ones he really needs to be loyal. Yeah, I mean, I just think he, I feel like he's fatally lost credibility by sort of insisting on this exiles, X-Files rather view of, uh, you know, how things work around Chelsea. And really, nobody believes in it. And I, I kind of get the feeling he's he's almost uh, trying to craft the story surrounding his departure rather than trying to do anything to prevent his own departure. You know, essentially to say, look, they were all against me. The establishment was against me. You know, I won too much. Um, they hated my freedoms. You know, whatever it is. But the fact is, he has uh, he has done some some bad things. I mean, I can't. You mentioned Eden Hazard. I cannot understand what's happening with Eden Hazard. Eden Hazard is Jose Mourinho's best player by a mile. He needs to have Eden Hazard playing well. And yet, it seems to me that the only thing, the only approach he's taken to try and to get Hazard to play better is kind of to shame him publicly. You know, to, to drop him and say, well, I dropped him because we were conceding goals. Um, all of the sort of public stuff he's done with Hazard has been pretty hostile. And it seems to me as though Hazard's response to that is not to you know, fight back, which I, I guess conventionally would be what Mourinho wants here, but rather just to sulk and to do nothing. And it's a disaster for both him and for uh, for the manager. Yeah, well, I think that, again, you know, tells about something else about Mourinho's style. And it's very hard to find anyone at the moment who believes Mourinho is the kind of manager who can fix things from here. Uh, and that's kind of extraordinary in itself. Like, you know, where where Chelsea have fallen to is... is, is it's so staggering in such a short space of time from, from you know, coasting to the title last season uh, to, to this, you know, they're not in a relegation battle, but they're in a, they're in a, they're, the top four looks, looks like a, a stretch at this stage as well. And nobody believes that Mourinho is, is, is the manager, is the kind of manager who can, who can fix this. Uh, and that tells an awful lot about how he approaches football, how he, um, how he approaches players, how he feels that that sense, as you say, about uh, you know the world being out to get him, and you know the world rep- you know being represented by you know everyone, like his players, his, you know, people in the club, everybody, you know, the, everything is wrong, and I think that's where you know a lot of this started. You know, you can trace it back to you know points last season, but in the summer when Chelsea didn't get the players that Mourinho wanted, uh, I think you know some you know his dissatisfaction grew, um, but. It's, it is extraordinary that a manager of, of Mourinho's gifts has kind of one way and nobody really f- feels, and I, I can't see how he, is, he, he can fix this unless he has uh, his personality entirely alters and his management style entirely alters and that's not going to happen. I know Liverpool fans would probably prefer a bit more focus on them over the last couple of days. The un- understandable that for once, no, people aren't really talking about Klopp to any great extent. Can you even judge how well they played given what they were up against? I mean, playing against a current Chelsea team seems to be an easier task than almost playing against anyone else in the league. 
Yeah, although no, I, I still think they did well because yeah. I don't. I think I think Klopp's Klopp's the thing Klopp has noticed since he came into Liverpool is is a, a little you know, and he said it after the Southampton game that they they didn't lack it when Southampton equalised. They didn't really have any beliefs that they could go and win the game again. So when Chelsea scored early, uh, that 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 could easily have happened. Now Chelsea's weaknesses probably you know did help in that regard, but. For Liverpool to kind of just come back into the game says something about what Klopp was doing, and it was interesting watching him uh, on the sideline because he, he is involved in everything that players do. He was, you know, he was he had one. He got furious with James Milner at one point for not, you know, making the right run. He went crazy at Nathaniel Klein for taking a free kick backwards. Uh, you know, and Klein couldn't believe it. I don't think some of the English players are used to this. He was kind of looking at this man ranting at him on the sideline during the game, kind of going, what are you saying to me? And Klopp, and Klopp doesn't give up. And this is his sort of intensity, which they're getting used to. There was, you know, he, <laughs> I was at the Spurs game and he had a similar thing happen with Jordan Ibe when he, uh, uh, as happened on Saturday, when he turned around to find Ibe. On Saturday it was quite comic because he was, he was right beside Klopp and Klopp turned around to see Ibe not ready to come on, still wearing his bib. And he did a kind of Basil Fawlty sort of double take uh, to see him just standing there in his bib, and then started screaming at him, "Why aren't you ready?" Uh, and so, and so, I kind of uh, slung, to, kind of skulked off, and got ready to come on. And there is an intensity uh, about what he's doing that I think was rewarded to a degree on on Saturday. Uh, I think bringing Benteke on when he did worked. Um, you know, they had control of the game for for most of the first half, but Benteke made a huge difference. And I think there was, there was evidence of that. And I think what, how he operates, got that sense of belief. Um, it, it was important for him to get a result like that. And you could hear it, you could hear it in the press room. You could hear the Liverpool dressing room was very close to the... Uh, the away dressing room was very close to the press room at, at Stamford Bridge. And you could actually hear the celebrations afterwards, um, which is kind of you know amazing. For, for a league game, it shows how important it was yeah. to Liverpool to win that. Yeah, fair enough, Dion. Brilliant stuff. Thanks, mate. Thanks, guys. Yeah, the Hazard stuff is interesting because this is a player who Jose Mourinho himself describes as having no ego. Mm. This isn't the guy who you have to fire a rocket up to. Probably sarcastically, I imagine. (laughs) I mean, he was saying, there we go, I'd say that was heavy sarcasm. Really? I'm talking about last year, though, when he was on top of his game and Mourinho was saying, my problem with this guy is he's too nice. I have to remind him how great he is and how great he can be Mm. so that he can become... So it's so, so far, he doesn't seem to have been a player who's needed the stick. And yet Mourinho's providing him plenty of stick this year and it really is backfiring. Again, Hazard... Not, not for the first time, though, because right, Mourinho, yeah. Mourinho has always liked to apply a bit of stick to Hazard. Um, Hazard, I think it's fair to say, is not really a self-starter. He's a very talented player who ultimately is like, yeah, this is great. You know, I'm a, I'm a big player for a big team and get paid lots of money and play some nice football from time to time and it's, it's all pretty cool. You know, he's not like, I don't think he demonstrates a really burning desire to be, you know, a Ronaldo-like crazy ambition to be the best player in the world. He's quite happy being very good, one of the best. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's that's enough. That's enough for him. And he is, he, you know, but he, I think he's one of these players who maybe needs to feel good to play well. Mourinho, though, his only way of motivating players appears to be to take against them, to, to challenge them. Well, no, it used to be. 
he had Frank Lampard was a guy in a similar situation, very different mindset. He was a self-starter, almost a definition of a self-starter in football. But yeah. he used to con- convince Lampard uh, that he was better than he probably was. In Did order you to hear to Harry Redknapp talking about Lampard? Oh, yeah, on uh, Graham Hunter's interview, yeah. yeah. The kid was a fitness fanatic. Well, he was talking about the dad as well, uh, Frank Lampard Senior. Senior, and his 250 houses, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) He was talking about how, uh, how, you know, West Ham fans accused him of putting on Frank Lampard as a substitute in games in order that he could get appearance money. Accused Harry Redknapp of doing this, yeah, Yeah, when he was managing West Ham. Frank Lampard's your nephew, so you want to put him on so he gets his appearance money. And one of the things that Harry Redknapp said, well, you know, this, the father's got about 250 houses he owns across London, but I'm putting them on to get 50 quid a pair. I was thinking, what? <laughs> 250 houses. houses? How did Frank Lampard Sr. manage to... Some sort of tycoon. Well, it's a common enough thing for footballers <laughs> to go into, into property, but normally not to that extent. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, a lot of... I, I bet some of Frank Lampard's teammates, some senior teammates, you know, own one pub or owned one pub, managed to parlay their career into a single pub, but he managed somehow to get 250 houses. And that's before Frank came along with his super wealth. And now, I mean, there was that Daily Mail story about them a while ago. Between them, they must own half of London by now. <laughs> um, uh, how do we get on to that? Oh, oh yeah. He, he was out there training all the time. Yeah. You know, uh, Frank Lampard Sr. trying to make himself quicker. He had no pace, even less pace than Frank. Trying to make himself quicker, and, he, and eventually he did. Uh, and Frank was the same. He just was always out there trying to improve himself. I don't think Eden Hazard's ever done that. Eden Hazard is like, I'm naturally brilliant. I've always been brilliant ever since I started doing this. It's great. Isn't it great to be brilliant? Mourinho doesn't like that. Mourinho wants a, a you know, he, I think his approach to him has always been more, like he's dropped him a few times. I remember when they got knocked out of the Champions League by Atletico Madrid. Hazard was a scapegoat for that because he didn't track uh, the left back or the right back rather running into the box. But it's beyond a certain point. You've got to try. Now, there was this story during the put, that was put out that Hazard and, and Mourinho had had a big heart-to-heart during the week in an attempt to extract more. Well, it clearly didn't work. You know, I didn't see much from Hazard um, in that game. And I, I, don't know if, I don't know if in these heart-to-hearts Mourinho really succeeds in sort of, you know, having, having dropped him, having kind of pointed at him, pointed him out, said, this, is, this guy's the reason we're conceding goals. I mean, you can imagine what Hazard's reaction was to that. No, I'm not. What are you talking about? Um, having done all that, I don't know if you can then sit down with him and go, hey, Eden, you know, what's what's eating you? I think the trust is is already gone. So I don't know. But it's it's symptomatic, I suppose, of a wider problem. John Bruin was watching Manchester United. Another nil-nil draw for Manchester United, John. Their third in a row. This is the first time that's happened since 2005. And amazingly, only the third time ever for United. The other time was their famously dysfunctional forward line of 1921 apparently how bored are you now watching Manchester United yeah pretty bored yeah uh, well um, yes and also to write about it's quite difficult as well thinking of it from a professional standpoint um, every game appears to be the same uh, I, I will credit them with the fact that they actually managed to have some first half shots this time around uh, though the first of those was a Slow motion Wayne Rooney free kick, which Wayne Hennessy, uh, I suppose, performed for the TV in stopping because he he, he was saving it all the way. Um, they're just so slow in attack and so lacking in uh, speed that we obviously have to mention Paul Scholes at this point, whose comments caused great headlines last week when he spoke to Radio Manchester. Um 
Scholes, I think, was correct in one respect in the fact that he said that the team lacked creativity and it would be difficult to score goals, even if you were Rude Van Nistelrooy, for example, in that team. Um, but I do think one of the things he said, though, was that uh, Wayne Rooney was um, it, Wayne Rooney was being sold short by the team. We also, I also have to say that I think Wayne Rooney is playing dreadfully at the moment, utterly lacking confidence, completely lacking in pace. Uh, the incident that really stands out for me is the pass from Anthony Martial with a sort of rare bit of speed, verve and skill in the first half from United, put him through. Uh, Rooney allowed the ball to run across him, but in doing so, it ran away from him because he doesn't have the pace to catch up with a rolling ball, which is not very good. So at this point, we have to wonder why Louis van Gaal continues with that um, Formation of placing Martial, a player of speed and finishing power, on the left, while Rooney struggles, huffs and puffs in the centre. I think a lot of the journalists picked up on this afterwards, John, the comments by Adam Pardew about uh, he wasn't in any way trying to uh, slag off Manchester United, but almost by extension, you could see that Wayne Rooney doesn't figure in opposition managers' mindsets the way he used to. He says, we didn't give Anthony Marshall an inch today, not an inch. It was a big target for us to stop him. And we felt if we could stop him, we could stop their creative angle. That doesn't say a huge amount for how he, he viewed the danger posed by Wayne Rooney. Well, no, that's, a, <laughs> that's it's very telling from Alan Pardew, who, who's very good at... Um, let's, let's, it's not really a sly dig, but it's, uh, he's very good at... Um, placing people, making people feel uncomfortable with what he says. And I think Wayne Rooney's ears should burn when he thinks about that because I think he's absolutely correct. Martial was the danger. He was almost double marked by Palace out on the left wing. Uh, and Rooney uh, against, you know, no less than Damien Delaney and Scott Dan struggled desperately. Mm. I mean, what about the, um, what about the idea, this is, I've had various arguments over Rooney sometimes, that actually his role in this team, he's pretty much doing the best he can given the constraints of his role, which, according to the sort of defense of Rooney, would be that he he almost has a kind of sacrificial role in the team, that the role of the center forward is the kind of almost to create space for others to drag markers out of position, you know, always to attack the front post, and leave others to come in at the black post in the penalty spot. Um, and that actually he's part of a, uh, he, he's with, with the typical Rooney unselfishness, he's playing a, an inglorious role uh, the, as good as anybody could possibly. I mean, what do you, what do you think of that logic? Well, yeah, I think there's some, there's some logic to that. The problem is that Wayne Rooney's lack of physical I wouldn't say preparation, but physical prowess these days means that it's difficult for him to play that type of role. If you swap that around, Martial would be able to play that, uh, be the almost sacrificial, and you would expect to, to uh, get on the end of some of the chances and, and finish, which is exactly the position he was in when he was scoring those two goals at Southampton, um, scoring in the League Cup against Ipswich. Um, Rooney's just lost it. That's the that's the point. Um, and listen, we we know that uh, Rooney has the habit of losing it during his career and then coming back very strong. But this is a this looks long term for the moment. Um, and there there are others that would say that Rooney deserves to play in the number ten position. But the problem is that in any position uh, he doesn't look comfortable. And the other thing I should mention is that 
United briefly looked actually a little bit more threatening when Rooney was put out to the left wing where Martial was, and Martial was able to run uh, at the heart of defenders like uh, Scott Dan and Damon Delaney, who, neither of whom are particularly blessed with pace. So what do you think is going on then, Joe? Because, I mean, it's, everyone is sort of thinking the same thing, or most people anyway looking at Rooney are thinking the same thing, and thinking, well, Martial looks very good. I mean, part, you could hear what Pardew was saying. Um, everybody thinks maybe put him in the middle. It's it's kind of an obvious solution that suggests itself. That would mean really playing somewhere else or maybe having to come out of the team, uh, which Louis van Gaal hasn't been interested in doing yet. So what do you, why do you think Louis van Gaal persists uh, with Wayne Reed? I mean, we know that he's the best paid player at the club. He's the captain. You know, He's got a status maybe above the other players. But these kinds of factors haven't really mattered much to van Gaal before when he was um, kicking around the likes of Rivaldo at Barcelona. No, I mean, one thing, when you mentioned Rooney's pay, I'm led to believe that the pay is heavily incentivized, so that if he plays, he gets paid an awful lot more. So United would perhaps be doing better financially if Rooney wasn't wasn't playing. Um, the result, there are also a couple of whispers flying around which uh, that perhaps Van Gaal is not so enamoured with Rooney as he previously was, and... Uh, the evidence is there to see why he might not be. And um, Van Gaal is giving Rooney the chance to prove himself so that, or not prove himself, so that he can actually come to a decision. Um, when he was talking about Martial on, on Saturday after the game, he started saying that, well, we don't really know if he's a left winger or a striker because he played most of his uh, football for Monaco, or Monaco, as he called them, uh, on the left wing. So... He seems to be suggesting that he didn't really know, but I can't believe that someone like Louis van Gaal does not see that um, Martial is the type of striker who can score goals and might remind him maybe of somebody like Patrick Kluivert, who you know, was similarly deadly as a teenager when he played for van Gaal at Ajax. It, it seems to me that van Gaal is sort of shuffling, might be shuffling things around to actually come to the big decision. And uh, you do wonder how many more chances Rooney's going to get um, before the big decision comes, because essentially Van Gaal is protecting himself. If uh, he's protecting his own position, if he plays Rooney and the team doesn't score goals, he takes Rooney out and the team scores goals. It's, well, Rooney isn't there. Then you've got to suggest that that such decisions have to be made. He has to eventually be pragmatic rather than. Uh, and I think maybe, maybe this is part of his pragmatism. It's just a theory, but it's certainly a whisper that's going around at the moment. Obviously, the fans, John, are screaming at the team to attack, and the, the away fans who seem to carry quite a bit of weight. How much weight does does how much of an impact does uh, Paul Scholes have on the thinking of these supporters? Do you think you mentioned what he had to say last week? Well, they were singing Paul Scholes' name on Saturday, right. which uh, which is telling. Um, and you don't often hear that um, as, as popular a player as he might be. Um, you know, it's more Eric Cantona than Paul Scholes, but no Eric Cantona this time, even though they were at Sellers Park. Uh, in fact, it was Paul Scholes. Um, and there was a lot of attack, attack, attack. Now, Van Gaal himself is constantly, in fact, refers to how good the fans are. Um, and seemed to be opening up some sort of dialogue with them uh, on Saturday when he said, oh, these fans know that the away fans, you know, talking about how loyal they are, uh, know that we've played best in every game away from home, apart from Arsenal, when he admitted they were poor. Though, 
seemingly omitted to mention the Swansea game uh, the day before Martial was signed, in fact, when they were absolutely terrible. Um, but he, 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 Van Gaal himself admitted that the fans have a right to express disquiet at the team when they're not playing well. So uh, the away fans, who are the most loyal fans and you might say the most knowledgeable fans, they do seem to be turning on Van Gaal and his style of play. Mm, that, it is interesting, a few things there. I mean, what is it about these Manchester United away fans? Literally every time I hear a Manchester United player or former player talking about, uh, you know, giving giving some kind of general interview where they were invited to talk about the fans, they always single out the away fans for praise. This seems to happen at more than any other, uh, at Manchester United more than any other club. What is it about these away fans that's so magical, John? Well, they're good at inventing songs. Um, I mean, I would say that you will hear a Manchester United fans singing a song. What was the one that they... They came up with that one to, for Michael Carrick a couple of years ago, which was uh, Oh, 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 It's Carrick, which I think is a song by a band called Pilot. Oh, 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 It's Magic. And that suddenly, everyone copies that around the country. They're influential. Um, if you also think oh, about the, it... The Leicester fans sang it for Cambiasso, I think. Yes, they did. Yeah, but yeah. they will have heard it first from... Uh, I think the one where it, it, it sort of hits it hit national exposure was a game at, at QPR when Carrick played very well. Yeah, that, that's how we think. But they have, uh, the, I suppose if you compare it to Old Trafford, Old Trafford is a, a ground which is full of tourists. It, it, has, to be, it has to be said. Um, can be very quiet, especially on the Saturday three o'clocks. But the fans that travel away from Old Trafford are boisterous, loud. Um, also, if you think about it, that you know, that United are the team that will always take the most away fans, and those that actually get to go to the games are those that have to qualify through um, through points and loyalty, um, and so they're the most committed and therefore perhaps the most fervent around. And yeah, they they do make the most noise of. Just about any away fans. It, it, it has to be said, that's the truth. Okay, brilliant stuff, John. Thank you. Cheers. Are you suitably convinced about the Manchester United away support now, Ken? After that explanation by John? They are. Uh, they are amazing supporters, uh, according to... Oh, 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 it's Carrick? Not a, uh, no, I wouldn't thought it was the most creative chant of all time, but <laughs> as long as it swept the country. It is one that sounds quite funny um, in a stadium, all right, sung by... Sung by a big bunch of uh, football supporters. That Rooney, I mentioned that I'd watched the documentary earlier on the show, the BBC programme. And one of the things, one of the striking parts of that, when they show the young Wayne Rooney, I mean, you remember all the power they're showing you in 2004, they're showing his goal against Arsenal. A lot of the commentary around him now, I find, is based, even the chats we've had, is based largely around how he's lost, he doesn't have the same power or explosiveness, which is true, Mm. and which is the natural... Uh, the natural consequence, I guess, of age, particularly maybe of somebody of his body type. But what can happen with footballers is that their other, they improve upon their other parts of their game, uh, mm. and they uh, those parts are accentuated. In Rooney's case, they showed footage of his debut. Was it against Turkey? He came on or played a friendly. I think so. Yeah. Don't don't think he scored, but he his, t- his touches were it. Like, his skill level was insane, and that was the appeal of Rooney at the start. It was this young bull of a man, this grown man who was sixteen years of age, but he was able to combine it with this incredible finesse and had these lovely first touches and was unafraid to try anything. It seems like that side of his game is also fallen away a little bit. He doesn't look as sure of himself in the way he, he controls the ball. You'll still see the odd amazing 40-yard crossfield pass or mm. the amazing touch, but it seems more 
occasional now mm. when earlier on his, his career I think was a pretty big part of it yeah no it, it definitely was but I mean he what he was always trying to do I mean he was always trying to get past the defender which he never does anymore you know it's, so it's kind of like the range of skills that he's displaying now are, are kind of it's a more sedate skill set anyway because not, if he knows if he does try to get past a defender he mightn't have the pace to stay away from him anyway I don't think it's gonna yeah it's not gonna happen I mean he doesn't have the pace to go past the defender. Mm. Whereas in the past, he was always trying to do that. And he was frequently, you know, running past guys. But, you know, he would kind of try those sort of flicks to take the ball past someone and then power past them. He was able to do that. Now, he doesn't do that. So there's almost no point in trying those types of touches. A lot of what he does now is just two-touch, control the ball, pass it to somebody else. That's really all he's doing. And it's it's a kind of an unspectacular... Um, maybe he, he may... He's not really getting himself in the sort of situations where he has to try moments of out there skill. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, Which is contributes to the to the impression of, of boredom. I mean, it happens to a lot of players. You know, when the older they get, the less exciting they become because they develop a more thorough understanding of their professional obligations on the Fernando field. Fernando Torres being a prime example, maybe. Well, Fernando Torres is maybe an example. That was of a who, too extreme, maybe. Yeah, I mean, a lot of players. You know, once they get the sense of oh, this is what I have to do for the team. They begin to lose a little bit of their. Yeah, and you always hear them talking about it in a positive way. I just might. I'm a better player. Like, I'm a better player. You're not, though. You're actually not as good a player <laughs> we as wish you were. We wish you were the old player that you used to be. Yeah. That's it for this show. Hopefully, you enjoyed it. We've got another new podcast out today, which will feature our chat about New Zealand winning the Rugby World Cup and plenty more besides that. Thanks very much, Ken. Thank you, too. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter at Second Captains, Facebook.com forward slash second, forward slash second Captains. I hate when I mess up the last line. Chat to you soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.